Our topic this afternoon is captured by the title, Every Good Thing That Is In You. Every Good Thing That Is In You. The concept of a Christian or a Christian community encountering an unsolvable problem is a contradiction in terms. Why? Because in Jesus, we are told in the Colossian epistle, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And that same second chapter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church says in just a few verses later than what I just quoted to you, that would be now in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2. Paul says to the Christian, he says to the Christian community, and you are complete in him. And so let's reflect on that opening remark. Let's reflect on our own experience. Let's reflect on whatever may be confronting our own lives in this moment. Let every Christian community reflect on itself and let it be stated again that the idea of a Christian life or a Christian community, I did not say the world, I did not say the average human being, I said the idea of a Christian or a Christian church encountering an unsolvable problem is a contradiction because it is as if one is saying that somehow in the Lord Jesus, somehow in our Christian faith, there is not a resource, there is not an answer, there is not a piece of wisdom, there is not sufficient power, there is not truth that would speak to this particular need. Now I do recognize that many Christians in many Christian churches collapse when they're confronted with a crisis. We could describe the various crises that would fit into this category, but we all know in our own experiences, there have been times when we haven't overcome as we ought to. There have been many churches, of course, that have folded because of one crisis or another. When we think about the record of the Christian communities, even in the New Testament, we can take in what we read in Revelation 2 and 3, and we discover that five out of the seven churches of Asia Minor, perhaps we don't know entirely what their responses were to the things that Jesus had to say to them, but we know that in their present condition, five out of seven churches were not overcoming. They were in the process of collapsing. And so when I state that the Christian life should not encounter a problem that is insurmountable, I am not stating something just for dramatic effect. I am acknowledging that nonetheless it is the case that we Christians do not always overcome the trials that face us. And it is the case that church communities as a group of sometimes overcome by the crises that face them. But these particular churches in the book of Revelation, if they did go on to collapse effectively, they would have done so in spite of the fact that every good thing that they needed 
in order to overcome any trial was already in them. If they are true believers in Jesus, if they are a true Christian community. Now you may have anticipated that I was going to say that if the five out of seven churches in Asia Minor that received a fairly strident rebuke from the Lord Jesus, if they went on to cease being a vital assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have done so in spite of the fact that Jesus addressed them with something amounting to a special revelation spoken by the Spirit of God, communicated to the Apostle John, and sent to each of the leadership teams or members of each particular church. And therefore, you might think of the idea as being one of information from beyond what was presently available to them at the moment had to be brought to their life in order for them to overcome. But technically, I will be arguing this afternoon that that is not quite right. The word that Jesus spoke to these different churches, and indeed, he did state things that they were not paying attention to. But nonetheless, it is very important to recognize that they already had within them the source of understanding and the answers to their problems, the corrections that they should make. These things were already there, for it stands to reason that if it wasn't possible or if it was not to be expected that they had these answers within them, then why was Jesus rebuking them in the first place? He was essentially saying, you aren't paying attention, you aren't retrieving, you are not seeking from within yourself as a Christian believer the very things that I am now presenting to you. Treasures of wisdom and understanding that are already available in your regenerate heart, filled with the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word of God, and is always capable of being more deeply informed from the fount of living waters, who personally is Jesus himself, of course, but is mediated through his holy word. You have a Bible that you can search out, and you can discover the treasures and the wisdom that speaks to any particular need if you will understand that you can activate every good thing that is in you in order to be the overcomer, which, by the way, Revelation 2 and 3 was stating that these churches should be. They were being beckoned and called to be overcomers and not to be overcome. This afternoon, we're going to look into a crisis that confronted a Christian community and in a unique way, a particular Christian man. And thankfully, we have every reason to believe that this crisis turned out well. The individual overcame. The crisis was met successfully. Christian truth and power was applied to it, and the victory was won. But we will see in the process of investigating the nature of this crisis and how it was overcome, we will see that that occurred specifically because the believer in particular 
and the community at large paid attention to every good thing that was already available to them. They acknowledged these good things, and we'll describe more fully what it means to acknowledge these good things. I'll say just parenthetically at the moment, it means to seek out the need that you have so that you can recognize it now that you found it in God's Word and acknowledge it. But they went on from just acknowledging it and entering into a fuller knowledge of what was already their inheritance. They went on to activating it, and that's why it turned out well. I want to give you an anecdote from church history at the beginning of our study this afternoon that indicates very possibly that indeed the story that we're going to be looking into turned out well. When Ignatius, who was a leader of the church of Antioch in the beginning of the second century, Antioch in Syria, you may know that he was arrested and he was brought to Rome to be executed, which took place in the year 110. So Ignatius was a martyr for the Christian faith. He was visited while traveling to Rome from Antioch in Smyrna by what church history says is the bishop of Ephesus. Their ecclesiology at that time began to use those ecclesiastical designations. We're not digressing into that matter at the moment. But Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was met in Smyrna by the bishop of Ephesus, and church history tells us, and we know this is a fact, that bishop's name was Onesimus. And while we cannot prove that this Onesimus, this bishop of Ephesus, is the same Onesimus who figures in the letter to Philemon, which was written some 50 years earlier, there is a strong tradition in church history that says they are one in the same person. For example, the British New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce makes the following remark. He says, quote, The identification, that is, of the two Onesimuses, is not impossible. One might go farther and say that it is not improbable. We have no idea how old Paul's Onesimus was when he wrote about him. But a young man in his late teens or early 20s at the time would be about 70 by the time of Ignatius' martyrdom, not an incredible age for a bishop in those days. And so I give you that anecdote at the beginning of this study. You will see its relevance to all that we're looking into. But let us underscore what we have just observed and let's take it as being a very likely fact and that is the church of Ephesus, some 50 years later than when the letter to Philemon was written, had for its leadership this very Onesimus himself. Very well, let's go back to Paul's day to see what we can learn from Paul's Onesimus and the crisis that his life presented. And we're going to see how it was solved by one man in particular, along with several other Christians, acknowledging and activating every good thing that was in them through Jesus Christ. 
The story begins in the Roman city of Colossae. Colossae was a city in the Roman Empire located in the province of Phrygia along the Lycus River, which is in the southwest of modern-day Turkey. Colossae is approximately 120 miles east of the major seaport city of Ephesus, and it is about 11 miles southeast of Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. Think of these various churches, Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae. They're in the relative same region. The Apostle Paul was in this region for much of the time that constituted the five years of his third missionary journey, dated typically between the years A.D. 52 and A.D. 57. And that third missionary journey included the better part of a three-year ministry of the Apostle Paul in the port city of Ephesus, which was the major city in that entire region at the time. While he was in Ephesus ministering this lengthy period of time, a man by the name of Epaphras, who was himself a resident of Colossae, he was from the city of Colossae. It's about 120 miles from Ephesus. But obviously he heard of Paul's ministry in that city. And Epaphras made his way to Ephesus. And he, beque- he became acquainted with Paul. And perhaps at Paul's beckoning or otherwise by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Epaphras traveled back to Colossae. And he was used of the Lord to establish a church in that city. We learn this from the Colossian epistle, which Paul wrote, within which Paul says, effectively, I did not start this church. I was not the vessel whom the Lord used to start this church. You remember his words in the first verse of chapter 2. He said, I wish you knew what great inner struggle I have for you at Colossae and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. It was not Paul who founded the church in Colossae directly. But we do learn who did. I just told you who it was. It was Epaphras. Where's the evidence for it? Colossians chapter 1. We will begin in verse 5. He says of the Colossians, you have heard the word of the truth of the gospel. You know what that is. That's evangelism. That's the Bible being preached. Verse 6, it came to you as it has in all the world. Well, of course, Paul wasn't the only one who was spreading the word of the truth and the gospel throughout all the world. But he says, it did come to you as it is making its way to many places throughout the world. He says it brought forth fruit. We could say, roughly speaking, a church was started. It brought forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew of the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. The Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. Certainly, 
Paul is in the equation because he is called a fellow servant of Paul's. In the fourth chapter to the Colossians, we read about Epaphras again and note the language. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you? That means he is a resident of Colossae. Epaphras, who is one of you? A servant of Christ salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and for them at Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Recall that Paul said in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he had not been to Laodicea either. And so we see that this brother Epaphras had a very fruitful ministry in that general region. This same church in Colossae had a relatively wealthy member by the name of Philemon. Philemon was a direct convert of the Apostle Paul. It's very reasonable to conclude, that being the case, as we know it is, that Philemon's conversion took place in Ephesus during Paul's extended ministry in that city. We know that Epaphras went to Ephesus and came under the influence of the Apostle Paul, then went to Colossae, and was used of the Lord to start a church, if you will, in Colossae. We will learn in a moment. I'll give you the biblical evidence for the statement that Philemon was a convert of the Apostle Paul, and therefore, I'm restating myself, that it is very likely that he too went to Ephesus, met the Apostle Paul, and was brought into the faith. This man, Philemon, had a wife named Aphia. Perhaps we can't prove that she is his wife in an absolute sense, but all of the evidence indicates that this woman who is mentioned also in the epistle to Philemon is certainly his wife. And he had a son, or at least a very close friend, named Archippus. Here's the scriptural support for these remarks. Philemon verse 1 and 2. Philemon is one chapter, so we don't have to say chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We just say Philemon 1 and 2. Paul is writing from Rome around 64 AD. Philemon is among the four prison epistles that were brought to their various locations by a brother by the name of Tychicus, and others were traveling with Tychicus to these various places, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae and Philemon, who is an individual, not a church. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that is in thy house. Whose house? Philemon's house. Now thus far what we are showing you is these relationships within Philemon's life, his wife Aphia, and then this other individual Archippus who is linked with them. 
and is likely his son. It is thought to have been his son, Archippus, but it certainly was someone special in his life to be linked in this way. I did state to you, if you caught it, that the church of Colossae had a relatively wealthy member named Philemon. Why would I say that? Because he had a house. And this house could not only accommodate a church, which is no small thing, as you can discover for yourself by just looking around at the size of this building that is thankfully provided by one of the brothers in this assembly, but his dwelling included a guest room. We learn that from the 22nd verse of Paul's letter to Philemon. He says, But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. I will be indicating in the course of this study that Philemon was a convert of Paul. That will come up in due time. We will validate that, but we're being a bit methodical as to how we're putting all of this together. So I want to return to Archippus. Archippus was old enough to be in the ministry at the time when Paul is writing to the Colossians. We learn this from the fourth chapter of Colossians in the 17th verse. There Paul writes, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. And so, some sense of the context of the letter to Philemon is gradually emerging. It will continue to build, I assure you, but thus far, your understanding, you have a man by the name of Epaphras. He goes to Ephesus. He meets the Apostle Paul. He is trained and equipped and perhaps even sent by Paul to the region of Phrygia, where Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis, where these cities are located on the Lycus River. Epaphras has a fruitful ministry there. Colossae in particular is an assembly that we know that he directly was instrumental in, in establishing. And we learn that this church meets in the home of one of the more well-off brothers, you know, we can argue all these details and drill down, and it would be useful if we were having a different sort of study, because it isn't necessarily the case that he is well-off at the moment. He may have inherited a house. For example, you recognize that we're not pretending we know everything with absolute certainty, but there is a picture that the Bible is presenting. So let's not get lost in the hypothetics that could vie against the picture that I'm describing. The church is meeting in the home of Philemon. He has a wife by the name of Aphia, who is a dear sister in the Lord, according to the Apostle Paul himself. She's dearly beloved. He likely has a son by the name of Archippus, who is also sharing the ministerial duties. But I want to draw your attention for the moment to another member of the Colossian assembly, this church that met in Philemon's house, and this member's name is Onesimus. And his story is a little bit complicated. Indeed, not all Bible readers are aware of the fact that Onesimus himself, at one point, became a member of the church in Colossae. 
Many might think of Onesimus as being the slave of Philemon, but they may not be aware of what we read in Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. This is the last chapter of the epistle to the Colossians, and Paul is sort of summing things up, and he says, All my state, my present situation, shall Tychicus declare unto you. Tychicus is another fellow laborer of the Apostle Paul. He is presently with Paul at the point when Paul is writing these prison epistles, and he is sending them out under the supervision of Tychicus to be distributed to their, their intended recipients. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose. I sent him to Colossae, like I'm sending him elsewhere, Paul is saying, that he might know your state, your situation, and comfort your hearts. Verse 9, I'm sending along with him Onesimus, that means Onesimus is presently in Rome when Paul is writing to the Colossians. And he's sending Onesimus along with Tychicus to deliver these prison epistles. One is going to the Ephesians. One is going to the Philippians. One is going to the Colossians. And one is going to an individual by the name of Philemon. And we continue to read in verse 9 that Onesimus, at this point, when Paul is sending him with Tychicus to Colossae, Paul says he is a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, which is to say that he is a resident of Colossae, so to speak. That is to say he is from Colossae. And when he describes him as a faithful and beloved brother, Paul is effectively saying he belongs in that church. The verse finishes off by saying, They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. As it relates to Tychicus, to just give you a sense of the breadth of the things that we're considering this afternoon, at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in the 21st verse of chapter 6, we read the following, But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. Sounds exactly like what he was writing to the Colossians. And so you get the picture, as I've been stating. Tychicus is going from place to place to inform the various assemblies of Paul's situation, he is also there to observe the present status of these various churches and to communicate with them. And we know that Onesimus is going along with Tychicus to these various locations, certainly to Philemon. Now, I say certainly to Philemon. There's no question about the fact that Onesimus would be standing with Tychicus when Tychicus delivers Paul's private, but not so private, letter to Philemon. Because Philemon had a relationship with Onesimus. Onesimus is now coming from Rome, thus far in our story. He's being sent back, or let's say he is attending Tychicus as they travel the roughly thousand miles from Rome over to Fr the area of Phrygia. 
You following me? And let's just take Philemon, the letter to Philemon. He is going to be standing with Tychicus when this letter is delivered to Philemon. But I want you to know that Philemon had had a relationship with Onesimus. They knew each other. I said the story is complicated. Originally, they knew each other as master and slave. You might think of slavery in the American colonial sense. It might have been somewhat similar to that, at least in aspects of severity. But it's also possible that it was more in the direction of what is known as an indentured servant. At a minimum, the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus was the relationship of an owner and an indentured servant. Take these remarks from a comment on biblical backgrounds relative to slavery. Slavery in the Greco-Roman era differed greatly from colonial slavery, English and American colonial slavery. The quote goes on to say, volunteer slavery was often used as a type of credit system and it seems Onesimus was this type of slave. One way or another, the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus was the relationship of owner and slave or indentured servant. Some support for this statement is given to us in the very letter that Paul wrote to Philemon in verse 18. And in verse 19, we read, If he, and Paul is referring there to Onesimus, If he wronged thee, adikeo, the Greek is for wronged, if he performed some unrighteous deed to you, did something unjust to you, or oweth thee, aphilo, if he's in debt to you. Paul says, put that on my account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. So you're seeing that Onesimus is in debt to Philemon at the point when Onesimus is journeying with Tychicus, showing up at Philemon's door, which is also the door to where the church of Colossae meets. It's the door to the house within which the church meets. And at the point when Onesimus is standing on the threshold of that door and now meeting Philemon, Onesimus is in debt. He is a runaway slave. He is an indentured servant that has gotten away from his master, his creditor, and that's the condition in which he stands. This situation is in this condition for the following reasons. About the year 63 B.C., Onesimus, in an act of self-centered rebellion, or perhaps in response to some offense that he received from Philemon, or maybe a mixture of the two, our topic today in part is dealing with crises that Christians can face. So you need to recognize that there is a very real personal dynamic to this story. Whether it was just a sheer act of rebellion on Onesimus' heart, who was not a believer at the time in 63 AD, whether it was coupled with some inconsiderate treatment that he received at the hands of Philemon, who was 
no doubt in some degree of leadership and esteem in the church in Colossae, we can't say for sure, but we do know that Onesimus ran away from Philemon. He ran away from Colossae. And he went, perhaps, first to the port city of Ephesus. That would make some sense, and some argue, incidentally, that the real location for the various things we're discussing here is Ephesus and not Rome. I am not going to digress into that possibility and interact with the strengths and weaknesses of that idea because we cannot jam everything that we possibly could speak about into one message. But the thinking pattern is that Paul was in Ephesus for three years. It's possible that he was imprisoned at some point in Ephesus. Ephesus is only 120 miles away from Colossae, whereas Rome is about a thousand miles away. The question becomes, to which place would a runaway slave be likely to go? And some argue he would go to Ephesus. But you see, there are many other considerations that render that possibility not very likely. And I'm sorry if you want to hear them all. Speak to me after the meeting. I can tell you that scholarship has chosen that the Roman location for where Paul writes to Philemon is the best conclusion given all the evidence, and I agree with that. But what I'm stating is perhaps he did go to the relatively larger city of Ephesus. But I've already said to you, Epaphras himself, we know for a fact, went from Colossae to Ephesus. The possibility that he would be discovered in Ephesus, while still being in Asia Minor, was possibly very high. And he may have felt threatened that he would be discovered in Ephesus. And whether he felt threatened and then thought that I better make my way to Rome, or that was his intention all along, which I think is very possible, that Onesimus planned from the start to go to Rome. He would likely go to the port city of Ephesus first, but then he would get to Rome as a stowaway or very possibly by purchasing his way. How would a slave do that? By stealing from his master named Philemon and defrauding him. And therefore Paul could say, if he owes you anything, perhaps even beyond the credit that he owes you, which constituted the reason why he became an, an indentured servant in the first place, if he stole from you Onesimus, I'll pay it back, which indicates again that he may have had some financial means and a plan whereby he would make himself, he'd make his way to the distant, large, metropolitan city of Rome where he could mingle among the crowds and never be discovered. That was his plan. However, Onesimus' plan fell apart because God's plan came together. Because in the merciful providence of God's grace, and I like to think also as we investigate this entire picture, I hope you can see the relevance of this remark, the beautiful placement of this idea. Onesimus planned to go to Rome, this runaway slave, which incidentally it was illegal to be a runaway slave. So you're under the concern of being discovered his thought was, I will mingle in the metropolitan area of Rome and I will not be discovered a thousand miles away. God's merciful providence 
intervened. And I started to say, perhaps also Philemon's prayers for his runaway slave plays a role even at this point. But one way or another, Onesimus' plans fell apart. We wouldn't know that Onesimus' plans fell apart, except for the fact that they did. And the fact that they did included the providential piece of the story that Onesimus met the Apostle Paul in Rome. How did he get to the Apostle Paul in Rome? Well, it's possible that his runaway slave status was discovered even in the city of Rome. God will find you out. If he is seeking after the fulfillment of his eternal plan to save your life, he is that merciful, he will find you out. And the fact of the matter is, is various individuals from the region of Phrygia, for example, could have been walking the streets of Rome. I'll get to that in just a moment. That may not have been from the church in Colossae, but could have just been in Rome and recognized Onesimus and pointed him out as a runaway slave. I don't know if the individual finds the runaway slave may be reimbursed financially. It's very likely that they were. But my point is, is perhaps his runaway slave status was discovered and he was arrested and imprisoned alongside of the incarcerated Apostle Paul. That's a likely story. Once again, F.F. Bruce makes a remark, speaking to these considerations, he says, there is no way of deciding how, in fact, Onesimus made his way to Paul. Perhaps Epaphras, remember him? Perhaps Epaphras of Colossae. Do you remember that Epaphras is from Colossae? who was on a visit to Paul at the time, which we know is true from Paul's letter that Epaphras was with him at the time when he's writing to the Colossians and dealing with Onesimus. So perhaps in God's providence, unbeknownst to Onesimus, who was a slave or an indentured servant to Philemon, who was a member of the church of Colossae, who also had Epaphras, as a leader, and Epaphras would likely know Onesimus. Onesimus was not saved at the time he rode, ran away, so probably was not attending the church. But nonetheless, Epaphras would know Onesimus. And now Epaphras, in God's providence, also traveled to Rome. And maybe it was Epaphras who's in the streets of Rome, and by divine appointment, he recognizes Onesimus. I do not think he would have him arrested but he would bring him to the Apostle Paul in order to be benefited from Paul's ministry out of the predicament that Onesimus has gotten himself into because he was really in a predicament. One way or another, Onesimus was connected with the Apostle Paul. And we have in front of us this very rich piece of the story filled with all sorts of possible reflections. We have an unregenerate runaway slave who is presently prodigal in his sense of freedom, roaming the streets of Rome, meeting the imprisoned apostle who helps set this freedom-seeking slave truly free. Just think of all those things. 
I'll let you do that on your own. We don't rewind tapes anymore. I'm exposing my age to some extent, but we're not in the cassette age, so I don't know what would be the... Push that little arrow that sets the podcast back three minutes or something and re-listen to what was just stated and think about it on your own. Here's a statement out of the letter to Philemon that shows us that indeed it was the Apostle Paul who was imprisoned in Rome who brought true freedom to this runaway slave who was discovered trying to live it up in Rome. You know what I'm saying? Like he's enslaved, but no, he wants freedom. He's roaming around the streets of the metropolitan city. And it takes an incarcerated prisoner named Paul to really set him free. Wow, hallelujah. Verse 10 of Philemon. I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly... He was useless to you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. That's what I want to draw your attention to. That detail that is right in the letter to Philemon that brings you back to the context and enables you to understand what's going on on the ground, as it were, with these individuals, Onesimus, Philemon, Paul. He says, I am sending him back. You know what that looks like? Onesimus is being sent from Rome back to Colossae. He has Tychicus along with him. And he also has a letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul that they are to deliver to Philemon. And this is in the year 64 AD or thereabouts. Now, dear brothers and sisters, if you're following this well, you would be asking yourself, how is this going to work out? There are two individuals in particular, one by the name of Philemon, another by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus' last act in Colossae was to one degree or another an act of defrauding Philemon. That perhaps doesn't trouble you at the moment, but I suspect certain things do trouble you or could possibly trouble you. Is it possible that some act of your spouse or one of your children or one of your parents or one of the members of the assembly or a neighbor, is it possible that any individual can do something relative to your life that really galls you, that really upsets you, that really sets your teeth on edge, that is very likely to instill a disposition of dislike and lodge it deep in your spirit. This is the sort of thing that we're looking at. And I might say, even at the outset of dealing with the development of this picture, which we will certainly get into as we take up the context of Philippians and all of Paul's statement to Philemon, it's pretty clear that the potential of a real rift And the real challenge to mending this relationship was quite real. And so I ask you again, and hope that you will envision this situation, 
as one that is tense, as one that has, as we've been stating, after some period of time, a year or so, this individual named Onesimus, who a while ago defrauded Philemon, left the area. Nobody knows where he is. He just knows, I tried to help you out. I tried to be a good man to your life. You stole from me, did not fulfill your obligations, took off to live it up, and I've lost track of you. And what's going to happen is this same Onesimus is going to knock on the door himself, or perhaps Tychicus will do the knocking, but Onesimus will be standing there. Maybe the church will be meeting at that very moment, and Philemon, since it's his house, he's going to open the door, and he's going to see Onesimus for the first time after the last act that occurred to he and his family of defrauding and running away and a very injurious and unthankful feeling might be in the heart of Philemon. How is this going to work out? Well, I have a more broad question for you, and I believe it's the question that the letter to Philemon is seeking to ask you and me. It isn't so much wanting to ask you, how did things work out between Onesimus and Philemon? That is the foil or the story. You might even say the metaphor. You might even say the parable, although it's true history. But that's the parable from which we derive a moral, a lesson for our lives. So the broader question is, is this, how does any crisis in a Christian life or in a Christian community work out? What in the world was in Paul's mind that made him think that his plan would work, that I could send Onesimus back with a letter to Philemon, I'm a thousand miles away, and this is all going to work out? Are you not aware of various situations where others have either advised you or you've advised others? to go and mend the situation, and it doesn't work out that well. What in the world was in Paul's mind that he was counting on, such that he had good reason that this thing would work out? Is Paul just so idealistic that he is prone to propose ridiculous possibilities? Well, I want you to know that Paul tells us very plainly what he is counting on, and you can decide for yourself whether or not his expectations are ridiculous. First, I will summarize Paul's point presented in verse 6 of Philemon. I'm going to summarize what that verse says, because it is in verse 6 that we find what Paul is counting on. And here is what Paul is counting on. Paul is counting on... Every good thing that is in Philemon, either in actuality or potentiality, but Paul is counting on something. It's not directly Philemon, as a matter of fact, and it's not Onesimus, and it's not even the Christian community as such. He's counting on every good thing that is already in Philemon, either already manifesting or potentially able to manifest. He's counting on every good thing to rise to the occasion and share the love of God with 
his community of believers without respect of persons. Paul knows if Philemon will activate every good thing that is in him toward being like Jesus Christ. I will explain that a little bit further as we show you the Greek of verse 6. But all of these good things that Paul is counting on, that he knows are in Philemon if he's a Christian man, all of these things are toward Jesus Christ. They are potentialities that can be activated. And as we activate these things in time of crisis, and then they become a part of our character, they bring us more close to the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows that if Philemon will activate every good thing, then his hopes for Onesimus, his son, and indeed his hopes for Philemon and the entire Colossian church assembly, he knows it will be realized. The verse sounds like this in the King James Version. May I state parenthetically, you will discover that expositors of this letter to Philemon will say that the sixth verse is the most obscure verse in the entire letter in terms of perceiving precisely what it is stating. And indeed, they will even state that within the Pauline corpus, this is one of the more difficult verses to really wrap your head around. Now, don't be discouraged. That is not to say that we're just guessing at what its meaning is. What it, we're saying is you really have to pay attention to the way in which the entire story is working and then pay attention to the inspired language that makes up this verse. And that's what we're going to do as we continue here. I'm stressing those remarks because when you hear the verse read in the King James, I will also read it in the ESV, it might not make a lot of sense to you in a powerful way right off the bat, but I've already given you a summation of what it's all about. So let's read the verse. He's saying to Philemon that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now that in Christ Jesus is ace Christon Iesun. Therefore the ESV translates that verse, particularly at the end of the verse, in the following manner. Here's the entirety of verse 6 in the ESV. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in you for the sake of Christ. Ace is a preposition that can mean toward. It can certainly mean in. It can mean for the sake of. Context determines the connotation that you land on. And you can even have a semantic domain, which means that you don't have to pick one particular connotation over another. You're sort of in the world of ace over against n, which is sort of the standard preposition for in Christ Jesus. Okay? So in many statements where you read in Christ Jesus, for example, frequently in the epistle to the Ephesians, it's n. Here it is ace. It's toward Christ Jesus, and that'll have some 
important relevance as we go forward. Allow me to give you a paraphrase of Paul's plea to Philemon that is centered in verse 6. This paraphrase is taken from the well-known grammarian Kenneth Vest. You might pronounce his name Woost. Some might know it in that way. It is spelled W-U-E-S-T. And I would suspect that some of you know of his work. He incorporates the fourth through the sixth verse as a pericope, a certain section. I thank my God always, Paul is writing, remembering you on the occasions of my seasons of prayer, hearing constantly of your love and faith, your faith which you have in the Lord Jesus and the divine and self-sacrificing love which you have toward all the saints, remembering you in my prayer times, praying that the contribution of your faith which faith you share in common with other believers may, through the resultant love which you have for all the saints, become effective in the sphere of a full and perfect experiential knowledge of every good thing that is in us with a view to the glory of Christ. Let us then examine a little more closely, the meaning of this verse, Philemon 6. Philemon verse 6. We're going to examine three primary pieces of this verse, phrases that make up this verse, so that you can get your head wrapped around what Paul is saying. First of all, the phrase that is translated in the King James Version as communication of thy faith, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual and so on. What is this idea, the communication of thy faith? Well, the ESV translates it as sharing of your faith. The Greek is koinonia tes pistuos su. So you hear the word koinonia in the verse. Here's the essence of what that idea speaks of. I will follow this statement of the essence of it with other usages of this idea in Paul's writings to help illumine what he's saying in Philemon verse 6. But here's the essence of it. Paul is saying, your faith, the Christian belief system, is not to be only a private faith. It is a common faith. In the language of Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, it is a shared source of solutions. Such a critical thought. We could call these solutions good things. Paul is beginning to present to Philemon this spiritual concept that he has in which he's saying, if you're a Christian, you are not an isolated individual. Number one, you've been linked with God, who if you allow me to say, I will state, and he is linked to the universe. In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you're a Christian, 
You are not isolated to your own abilities and capacities. But even beyond that, to be a Christian, biblically speaking, you become a part of a community of faith. And as a matter of fact, this faith, this Christian belief system, what our Bibles teach, it is not something that is given to any one of us in an individualistic way. It is given to all of us to participate in so that collectively, as we continue our journey in this life, being works in progress like we are, and therefore facing numerous crises, even among ourselves, even within our families, and then of course out in society, we are no longer without resources. We share a common faith and we should communicate this faith to one another, which is to say we should realize that there is a reservoir of truth and solutions and counsel and wisdom that is in the Bible, that is in Christian doctrine. And you might say we should get our heads together and we should figure out what the answers are to problems. Or even individually, if I face a personal crisis, I should realize that the resolution of that crisis is not intended to simply benefit me. But when I discover the true resolution to a particular crisis, and if I activate that resolution and live it out, then I am sharing the treasures of the faith with my brothers and sisters, which previously may not have seen that this is an aspect of Jesus that answers problems. This is a treasure from Christ that will richly meet this particular need. And so I don't just overcome for my own benefit. I overcome in a way to communicate this precious truth that has everything we need, but it is not fully revealed. And it gets revealed through the process of crises as we don't just simply seek from our own strength what answers to bring to the problem, but we know very clearly we go to the faith. We go to that treasure chest called the Christian Bible. We go to the reserve of the wisdom in heaven and we dig through it until we find the particular treasure that speaks to this particular crisis, whether it's a matter of counsel, a matter of doctrine, or a change in our attitude and personality. We find the thing that will bring Jesus to this problem. And if we live it, by living it and manifesting it, we have just brought something more of Christ out into manifestation and visibility that was not there before, and the entire church now can benefit. So it's a matter of finding answers to the challenges that arise within your Christian community from your Bible. We see this idea used in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, toward the end of the chapter, or, uh, excuse me, toward the end of the epistle in chapter 6, beginning with verse 17, we read the following words. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to a church. Is that not right? 
Is Paul saying go down to the public square and any rich people that happen to walk down the street, tell them the following. No, he's saying speak to the church. And so in the church, there are distinctions of financial and economic status that could potentially become the source of a crisis within that particular church. But you know, there's a way of fixing that crisis. There's an answer through Jesus or in Jesus or that's toward Christ-likeness that you're not going to find out in the unregenerate world. You won't find ways of resolving financial matters that can divide people, can divide families after generations of living together and then some parent passes away and now an inheritance comes into play and they're all at each other's necks. It's happened many, many times. What if that begins to emerge within the Christian community, either between themselves or perhaps a believer in the Christian community, something like Philemon was, who at one point had somebody named Onesimus, who was not a Christian at the time, but was in a relationship with him. And what if a believer in a particular church has an unbeliever as, let's say, a sibling who is greedy about finances and is dealing unjustly with inheritance and therefore the believer may want to go as it were to the church or as it were to Jesus through the church and say command my sister or my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words what I'm saying is are you listening to me? I just am introducing to you not here the problem of an indentured servant that was perhaps treated quite nicely by Philemon, who then defrauded him and ran away. Or we can change the story. This could also be the case. Maybe Philemon had a slave before he got converted, got converted, and maybe he wasn't dealing with all the greed and all the old man feelings in his heart, and he didn't release Onesimus, and maybe some other believers in Colossae did, and Onesimus saw that, and maybe had some words about that, and maybe Philemon said, look, I'm going to release you when you finish paying off your debt. I didn't go steal you out of the backwoods and shackle you and force you into the situation. Pay off your debt, and then you'll be released. And maybe Philemon felt, you're not a believer, so, you know, I'm not quite there yet. And therefore perhaps didn't treat Onesimus nicely beyond even not releasing him. Maybe he felt the pangs of conscience of having a slave and took it out slightly on Onesimus. We don't know. But I am telling you, if you listen to what I'm crafting here for a possible story, what I'm more particularly seeking to do is all of our lives have stories like this with variables and nuances and all the rest of it. And what do you do in those crises? And so here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're seeing the potential crisis of problems developing because of financial issues. And Paul pulls out of the treasures of the Lord Jesus Christ a gem of counsel that is intended to address this matter so that the financial problems can be overcome in the Christian's life. Within a Christian community, you could have distinctions in terms of material possessions. 
I do not think the Bible denounces that. That's a study for another time if we were to deal with that question thoroughly. But I do believe, and I think it's quite beautiful, as opposed to forcing communism, and I don't mean communism in the Marxist sense, but as, as opposed to enforcing equanimity or something along those lines. And again, I'm not dealing with this question, okay, in a technical sense. I'm just saying that if we allow distinctions to be among us, or if in fact they do exist, are we able to relate to one another and work through the potential crises? You know, I pointed earlier to this wonderful barn, and I was somewhat, possibly, it could be taken as, implying that Brother Stephen obviously has wealth in a similar way that Philemon does. But the reality is, unless you've been checking his checkbook recently, you don't know that because it took something to build the barn and that money is not around any longer. And we could discuss this at length. And that's not my intention. You see, I don't think anybody's having a problem here, but it isn't so foreign to our ears that these things could be problematic because I know the rejoinder to what I just stated could quickly come and it is the following. Well, he might not have the money now, but he does have the barn and he could sell it and I don't got nothing. So he's still better off and it still sort of gets me a little bit. So we're saying, is there some good thing that is already in you that you need to go find? Dig down deep into the treasures that are Jesus and find that good thing to overcome this particular crisis. If you will, then there is no unsolvable crisis or problem for a Christian person or a Christian community. If there is, you are saying that Jesus does not have a solution for this issue. So I'm reading 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those that are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Well, I don't think George Soros is giving that advice. But we're not the church of Soros. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We have a treasure of wisdom and knowledge. We have good things that'll take our chaotic, formerly unregenerate minds and hearts and dispositions and attitudes and sort them out into divine order and wrought with love and wisdom and balance and justice. So we'll start with, tell them not to be haughty. He didn't say tell them to give all their money away. He said, tell them not to be haughty. Do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Now that's necessary for everybody, right? Because maybe you have less, but you hold on to it more firmly. That's often the case. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, and then this, willing to share. There's the same term and the same idea that we have in the phrase, communication of thy faith. How so? This is what he's saying. It's interesting that the word that he uses is from that same root, koinonia. And he's saying, you have money, you are in a community. You have a resource and a treasure from God. God's the one who gives us richly all things. He isn't arguing God gives you part of it, but of course your stocks and bonds give you most of it. And what you earn from your nine to five job gives you another significant portion and God supplements it here and there when you find an envelope on your car seat. He's saying God is the one 
that gives us all things. You get into the Christian faith, you become a Christian, and here's one of the good things you discover. God is sovereign. God is providential. Promotion comes not from the east or the west or the north or the south. God raises up and brings down. Prosperity is of the Lord. The prosperity that is worth having is of the Lord. And he's saying that treasure, both of the financial means and the recognition not to be haughty and the possibility that love would distribute, these are all good things and share it with others so that others can see Jesus emerge right in front of their eyes and then their hearts will begin to get convicted and trained as no doubt if we leap forward depending on how Philemon responds to Onesimus a lesson is going to happen right on his doorstep for the entire church to observe which would be a communication of faith a sharing with everybody the good things that Jesus has given us not the good things that are necessarily in Philemon as we'll be showing in other words Philemon might look inside of his heart and not feel a prompt toward forgiveness I want to retain some of these observations for a little bit later so I'll just limit myself to state at the moment that this communication of faith and this should be the way it is for everything we do. If God has helped me to be a faithful man to my wife, I am not the source of those good things. I have to dig deep. And if she's on the threshold of my life and we've had some difficulty or disagreement or whatever, it does not have to be an insurmountable problem. It does not have to end in divorce. It does not have to end in just cohabitation. We don't divorce, but we, we're divorced in the home. No, you can reach down and find there's a good thing in you that can meet this need. And if you will pull it out, you, however hard that is, you have to sometimes dig deep to get down to that goal. But you pull it out, you begin to manifest it, you live it on the thresholds of life for all to see, and you are sharing your faith with everybody else in Jesus becomes known. It's toward Jesus Christ. So now we want to look at the phrase may become effectual. That the communication of thy faith may become effectual. In the ESV it is translated may become effective. Energes genetai is the Greek and the genetai is in the subjunctive mood. Here is the essence of what that phrase is referring to. The previous statement, the communication of thy faith, is primarily in the direction, as I've already stated, is here's a crisis, go to your faith and look for the solution. When we get to may become effectual, we enter now into the complementary piece of this wisdom that states once this solution this good thing is discovered you must activate it put it into practice put forth the energy necessary to apply the good thing I am aware that you can reflect on a number of other biblical statements that teach the same idea 
that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. But nonetheless, in any particular crisis, that is exactly what needs to be advocated. Paul thought if he sent Onesimus back to Philemon, even though Onesimus is going to meet Philemon on his doorstep with a letter handed to him from Tychicus that he's going to take and read. And we're going to get into at the end of this teaching, actually, the 25 verses that are Philemon. We're going to sort of work through it relatively quickly so you can feel what's happening as he unrolls that scroll, if you will, and reads the 25 verses. Uh, you'll see with me that it was quite an expectation that Paul had for Philemon. And how it's going to work is, again, that Paul believes that because Philemon is a Christian, and even Onesimus at this point is a Christian, there are good things from Jesus that can be understood. Amen? But not just understood. I suppose as it relates to relationships, every man in here who's married knows that the Bible says, the text says, husbands love your wife. And there's a sense in which you could have a crisis and you tell yourself, well, I believe that husbands should love their wives. And you think that you've done something by acknowledging that husbands should love their wives. But this says it needs to become effectual. There's a good thing that requires a sufficient degree of energy behind it so that that good thing is applied. Allow me to give the idea to you as it relates to God himself, and I think you will agree with me that we are happy that God does not just think of good things and speak good things to us, but he actually activates them. Take, for example, what is said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. We're told that we are buried with Jesus in baptism, wherein also we are risen with Jesus through the faith of the operation of God. Dia teis pistuos teis and ergeis tu theu. It's the same verbal arrangement. It is the energy of God that activates the promise is what is actually going to bring about our resurrection from the dead. You know why you expect to be truly resurrected from the dead? It's because you have faith in the faithfulness of God, which means God will put forth the energy necessary to raise you up. He will not simply say, be warmed and filled when your body shows up in its unresurrected un state. He's not going to, when you show up at the door of eternity in your unresurrected body, he isn't just going to open up and say, here's a promise for you. I promise you resurrection. Be warmed and filled and then close the door. He's going to put forth the energy to warm and fill you and actually raise that body up. Ezekiel gets to this concept here. First, in Ezekiel 37, we have a problem and a promise. Starting with verse 3, we read, Yahweh says unto Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And for our purposes, we're going to think of these bones as unresurrected bodies, if you allow me to do that. It is an appropriate application, although it doesn't need to be limited to unresurrected bodies. It can speak of national Israel and prophecies regarding their um, future um, ingathering and 
um, God's attention coming back to the Jewish nation and bringing the life of Jesus into their hearts. But again, Yahweh says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Right now we're just looking at the problem. And I answered, O Lord, you know. And so the Lord says unto me, Ezekiel speaking, the Lord says, prophesy unto these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the word of the Lord unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. Now what this is thus far, which you might miss because you know how faithful God is, but if a person were doing this, what this is so far is, say for example, if we stay in relationships, me saying to my wife, I'm going to love you till death do us part. I'm going to do you good and not evil for all my life. Or in some particular issue, I'm going to work on this, honey, and I'm going to get this right. Or I say to Brother Stephen, who I clash with all the time, you know, you were right at least once or partly right once. And I'm going to work on the minuscule part of my life that has to be adjusted in order for you to stop stumbling over my righteousness. I'm glad you can laugh. The, the part of that that you're supposed to extract is, I'm saying to him, I'm going to work on it. Or I can say otherwise. Let's say Stephen sees that I have a spat with Brother Chris and he takes me aside and he counsels me and I say, you know, you're right. I should stop. I should stop whatever I'm doing that's annoying. And we have this discussion. I've been through these sort of situations in counseling members of churches about various issues. We go out to the restaurant. We sit across the table. We have a conversation about how you should be treating another member perhaps your father, your wife, we leave the place, I'm all happy, I think we've made some progress, only to find out what Brother Freeman used to call threshold metamorphosis. As soon as that same individual gets over the threshold of his home, I guess he satisfied himself with saying the right things, and he doesn't do them. Well, God says, here, son of man, speak these words to the bones. But that's not where he leaves it. When we get to the ninth verse, we read, about the power and the performance, not just the problem and the promise. Here's a problem. You give forth a promise for its fix. I'm going to stop dominating the conversation. I'm going to stop criticizing you. I'm going to give you a chance to share your ideas. There's the problem. There's your promise. So the individual starts to talk and hasn't said three words and you're interrupting them again. That is not going to work between Philemon and Onesimus. This crisis is too deep. You understand? I have to get through this message before midnight, I suppose. So, you know, I don't know how much I can digress to make my points, but when Onesimus shows up after a lengthy time away, and to Philemon's surprise, he opens the door, and there's Onesimus. He's saying, praise the Lord, brother. <laughs> Philemon might say, brother, my foot. And, he would say, if, and Onesimus say, I don't mind being your foot, brother, as long as I'm in the church. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and maybe the two of them are starting to, who's reaching in and finding the good thing from Jesus is what I'm saying. So I'm starting to say, if Philemon, let's say they didn't say that. Let's say Philemon opens the door and, and Onesimus is quiet, which is probably the better beginning move. Tychicus gives Philemon the letter. Philemon begins to read it. We'll see what it's all about in a little bit. And Philemon has a little bit of difficulty. I'm not saying that he did. I'm saying, what if he did? And he says, well, where's the three talents that you took? What is Onesimus going to do? 
I hope you're understanding the thought experiments I'm trying to give to you. What I'm saying is if somebody doesn't find a good thing within them, what Onesimus would do is reach in and he would say, Brother, I am sorry. I am going to pay that back and I intend to pay it back and add a little more. And brother, you tell me how I can make this right. You understand what I'm saying? But if Philemon doesn't respond just as he should, and then the other individual, Onesimus, doesn't respond in the way he should, this isn't going to work out. Some crises are so deep. If somebody does not find the good thing for this issue that is not insurmountable, look at Jesus didn't magically fix everything he confronted in the sense of he just waved his hand and everything became millennial, like in the millennial state at the moment. Amen? But if you're understanding what I'm stating, it is nonetheless true that there was no insurmountable problem that he faced. What is it? Money changes in the temple? He has a solution for that. It might not fix it forever, but he knows what to do, and he does it in a measured, appropriate way. Is it a woman who has an issue of blood? Others may not know how to fix that, but he looks down inside himself and he finds the treasure that meets that. Is it a woman caught in adultery? Even if I have to pause for a moment and think about the situation and discover what's that good thing to say in the moment. Oh, I got it. He that is without sin cast the first stone. He could have said, you hypocritical snakes in the moment, but he didn't. Amen? In John 8, you following what I'm saying? There was a better time for that. It was in Matthew 23. There are no insurmountable problems because if you're a Christian, you have Jesus in you. You are complete in Him who is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. You know what your issue is, is you're just not digging down in your Bible and pulling out the treasures. Or maybe you are and you find the treasure and it's gold, but it looks like lead to you. You understand what I mean? It's the cross. Or it's gold, but it's in the form of a cross. I'm just trying to make it up on the fly. You don't want the cross, but you haven't been convinced that that's a good thing. Well, we need to keep moving forward here. I was wanting to show you that in Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 9, we read, Then said he unto me, Let's activate this. Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come! From the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up on their feet, and they were an exceeding great army. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, God is going to change our vile body, not just promise, not just give us it in a doctrinal statement. He's going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you understand what that is stating? That's stating that God does not just give you doctrinal statements. He doesn't just set the writing out in front of your eyes. He works in you. He provides the energy so that you can really be warmed and filled by being a better Christian person. And when you show up at his door hungry because you lack righteousness and naked because 
You lack holiness. He doesn't say, here's a Bible, be warmed and filled. All the instructions are right there. He does give you the words, but he also energizes it. And so the communication of our faith in the face of a crisis is about digging into the Bible and finding the text that is for this situation, and then you've got to activate it. You've got to dig down, look at the thing in its face, know that in many times, I don't want to make this change. But if you want to overcome, as opposed to perpetuating a crisis, you take what you know in your conscience is the Word of God for this issue, and you let the work go on inside of you, and you activate it, and you live it out, and that is a true communication of faith that others can see. And you know, brothers and sisters, especially because it's not their trial at the moment, they're going to say, praise God. We heard it today about Corey Ten Boom. She was one who dug down into her Bible and found an answer for every awful crisis. And she activated it. And everybody around her got to see Jesus and got to realize when you're a Christian Dutch woman of whatever size and muscle strength and you could be knocked over quite easily from a physical perspective but you are able to overcome everything that comes against you. Why? Because of every good thing that is in every single believer if they would just find it and activate it. There are many passages that speak about this working of God, I think I'm going to not bring them all to your attention or spend much time with these ideas so that we can get through this study, hopefully, as the Lord allows, in, in one setting, if the Lord allows. I'll mention something quick. Paul speaks about this labor that he exerts in the ministry. And where does he get it from? He says... It is something that God does. I strive according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. I could give you many verses about that idea. Now we come to the phrase, the acknowledging. So Philippians 6 says, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you. The ESV translates those words in this way for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ I want to draw your attention to the single Greek word epigenosis epigenosis we've already spoken about the phrase ace Christon Iesun which is toward Christ I will likely incorporate that idea as I express these thoughts but epigenesis this is behind the King James acknowledging. Here's the essence of what Paul is saying. If you care enough about being a Christian, loving others, and yourself growing toward Christ, ace Christon Iesun, if you care enough about your own growth toward Christ, if you care enough about living up to your name, then you will find an answer from your Bible and within your new heart to respond to any crisis. This is knowledge for the problem, and you can find it if you seek out every good thing that is in you, which is toward Jesus. 
Always in the Bible, knowledge is a matter of life and death and affects a person's total life. It is never an act of possession of the brain only. But what this idea is talking about, and since we have hinted at the place that epigenosis plays in this overall verse and some of the statements we've already made, I will emphasize its particular role because epigenosis means full knowledge. The King James of acknowledging is something along the lines of discovery. And then when you discover it, say, aha, now there it is. I didn't know that. I've seen things in my life. I'm not going to assess my life and state that I'm perfectly innocent because God knows better. But I am going to say that there are certain things in my life that we can speak as among men where I just didn't know what I was doing was wrong. But then when somebody brings the word of God to me and it's a treasure from Jesus that meets this crisis that I'm in part bringing about, Onesimus might have felt, well, what do you do when you have a master like this, a supposed Christian who treats you unfairly? I see no possibility of ever having this situation reconciled. Again, I don't know that that's the way things went, but I am stating he ran away, maybe thinking that was his solution. I grant that's a bit of a stretch probably to really make that work. But what I'm trying to say, the idea of epigenosis is the idea that you should know as a Christian believer, you should know as a Christian church, I don't care what the crisis is, there is wisdom in the Bible, there is guidance from the Spirit, there is the possibility from my regenerate heart, if it is regenerate, meaning there's an incorruptible seed way, way deep down. If I will find that good thing way deep down through prayer, through reading the Word, through discussion about the Bible, and not just suggestions, generally speaking, but going back to the text and finding the answer to any crisis. What I'm saying is, God providentially, as with Philemon, will allow weird and strange problems to come to your life so that you can discover more fully all the knowledge that God wishes to inform your life about so that you will see the wisdom of Jesus for this, that, and the other thing. And once again, he then uses your life and the crisis that you went through to manifest the treasures of the Christian faith to the entire community. Does that make sense? If there were never concentration camps, if Hitler never rose to power, Corey Ten Boom would not have been used of the Lord to manifest to all believers of all time that there's an answer in Jesus even for this atrocity. And I perhaps should have linked into that set of statements that only because Corey Ten Boom, unlike many believers, no doubt, during that time, she went down and found the treasure, the good thing that was in her. Why? Because she's a Christian. There's nothing too hard for God. But when we don't acknowledge the good things, you know what we become in our actual behavior? We become inconsiderate. You know why? Because you're not considering what the Bible has to say about this issue. And how many ways are we offensive because we're inconsiderate? We say we're Christians. There are crises. We can feel them at some level. 
But we don't find the good thing. I didn't say you didn't activate what you think is the right action for this issue. No, we said specifically, and this is what Paul is saying to Philemon. He isn't appealing to Philemon to give it his best Philemon shot to work things out with Onesimus. He says, Philemon, go to your faith, the communication of faith. Go to your faith and energize it. Make it energetic by acknowledging every good thing that is in you. In other words, Philemon, when Onesimus shows up and you don't have a good thing to say to him at the moment because it's not in you, he says, don't worry. You're not totally bankrupt. Don't worry. This does not have to defeat you. Go find that good thing that is in you through Jesus Christ and bring that out and energize it. And this will all work out wonderfully. I want to give you, in closing, three principles for how we believers can activate every good thing that is in us in time of crisis. The first two principles I will give to you relatively quickly the third will take a little bit more time, but I will seek to work through it at a fairly steady rate. Three principles for how we can activate every good thing that is in us. All these three are very important. First of all, face the truth that there is no good thing in you. How do you activate every good thing? It may seem strange, Paul says to Philemon, this is how we're going to overcome this crisis with Onesimus. Find a good thing that is in you and activate it. How's Philemon going to do that? If he's going to do it well, the first thing he needs to know is, there is no good thing in me. The Bible says that. Paul says, I know that in me dwells no good thing. And if that's the only text we had then Paul would be playing games with Philemon because he would say, I want to be a good person in this situation, but it's just not in me. And how many times have we felt that? I was feeling that just recently. We all have our various stresses in life, and I'm, I have mine, whatever they might be. I won't try to describe them to you. And I was telling my wife that I, I often don't feel the kind of compassion that I, I really feel I should be bringing forth in certain circumstances, you know, and, and I'm troubled about it. But, but the reality is, is there is no good thing in me. And there's something refreshing and true about going before the Lord and saying, I'm not the compassionate person I want to be. You know, I grew up in a complicated situation like everybody else. And, and, uh, but, but there is in Jesus, he's full of compassion and I can either ignore the reality that he can transform my character at least appreciably. I might not be a hundredfold compassionate person, but I can be at least 10 more percent than I am presently if I will dig down and find the good things. And it might be that Jesus is just saying, spend four more hours with this person. Put your books away and spend four more hours. In my case, maybe that's what it is. Now, there's a solution right there if I activate it. But how many people can hear things like this, get wisdom, and every one of us is smart enough to understand basics like this. You don't have to be a genius. In fact, you are a genius by ignoring your conscience. You're playing very clever games and pretending you didn't hear God. So you are a genius. So stop saying you can't understand God. You can. You understand Him enough to have a clever way to ignore Him. So what I'm saying is, if God speaks that to my heart, I just found a good thing. 
Now I can activate that and I can be more toward Christ. And if others are watching my life and if we're in a situation where others are struggling with compassion too, then I communicate my faith with everyone. And that's what, by the way, this is all about. This isn't just about me overcoming. This is about a community of faith that is tasked with manifesting Jesus. And in my life, I'm not going to manifest Christ entirely all on my little lonesome. I need you to help show aspects of Jesus Christ through your trials so that we can see the fullness of his beauty that was Philemon's possibility so first of all he has to know there's no good thing in me Paul goes on to say in Romans 7 verse 18 to will is present with me but how to perform it I don't know Jesus said why do you call anybody good there is nobody who's good First, admit that there is no good thing in you Jesus said in John 15 5 without me you can do nothing there is no good thing in you. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in him. Paul didn't write to Philemon and say, Activate that good thing that is in you, Philemon. No, he first talked about the communication of your faith. Amen? He's pointing Philemon to the faith, the reservoir of Christian truth, the Bible away from Philemon to the Bible, to the fountain of living waters and solutions. And he's saying, enter into the full knowledge of what that's all about. Here's a crisis. You don't know how to reach it. It's not in you, Philemon, to know how to deal with somebody who treats you this way. Maybe Bob knows how to deal with it for whatever reasons, or he's not as prone to be clumsy about this particular issue. You understand what I'm saying? But maybe Philemon, he might have been the kind of person some people are. Some people, you know, you move their cup and they're going to have a fit because everything has to be in a particular place. You know, it, that's not necessarily a problem in terms of we all have different personality preferences. But if that's your problem and it's not in you, how to not snap at somebody? You follow what I'm saying? For all of us, ultimately everything, of course, I'm not contradicting myself. There's no good thing in us, but I'm talking about that in life we'll experience. It's just not in me to know how to do this well. It says in verse 23 of Jeremiah 10, It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The first thing, brothers and sisters, when you do open the door and you're standing on the threshold and your Onesimus, your crisis faces you and you feel the heat and the tension of the moment, first tell yourself, there's nothing in me that's going to respond well to this. There is a challenge in our life. The flesh strives against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The result be is you can't do the things you want to. So realize you don't have a reserve to start with. Then when you get into the prospect of living the Christian life, you've got the old man, I'm not teaching two natures, but old habits and so on that buy against the wooings and the call of the Spirit. And if you're going to stick with your own power and you're just grit to get it done, you're often not to, going to be successful. And in a real crisis, you will absolutely blow it, believe me. So you have to first acknowledge there is no good thing in me, number one. Number two, if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, then you, secondly, must recognize that you have an entirely new supply of good things. It's not complicated, is it? 
There's no good thing in me. That's true about all of humanity. All humanity are depraved of good things. Jesus said it. There are none that are good. No, not one. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. We might will to do the right thing, but to really do it right, it's not in you to really do anything right. Not in you, not on your own two feet, not in your own human powers. Okay, but brothers and sisters, here's a beautiful part of the gospel we should pay more attention to. It's real simple. So shame on us to the extent that we still fumble around like, we don't know how to be a better person. I don't know how to deal with this crisis. It's just my personality. Exactly. And I could have told you and you could have told me ahead of time, your personality stinks. I mean, that which is dead probably stinks. Would you not agree? Especially if it's dead in the sort of way that we're dead, where we're dead, but we're still sort of kicking around. When something's dead, but still sort of there on the side of the road or whatever, it tends to stink. And when you bring the call of the Spirit into your life, that's not a solution as such, because the flesh strives against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And when you're left in that sphere, you're not going to do the things that you would. So what you have to do is you have to say, if any man be in Christ, and I am, I'm a confessing Christian, I am a new creature. All things are new. Does that mean I'm automatically brand spanking new in every last respect? Would to God that were true, but we all know that's not the case. What is true is I have a new supply of good things that I did not have before I entered into the riches of God's family, the inheritance that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. Now I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now I can have a crisis, as the Apostle Paul did, that nearly throws my mind in, into conniptions, only to have God say, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul. You know what that looks like in the context of our study? And it was true of the Apostle Paul. So this applies to all of us. In Paul's mind, in Paul's resources, even to the extent that he had already brought into his life much that was new from Jesus, he had not gotten to this aspect of grace wherein you can look at a crazy situation like you put forth all this effort to see churches established and then they are torn down by inconsiderate, arrogant individuals and that just rips you to shreds. But you know what? That crisis does not have to defeat you. It is not insurmountable. Why? Because there's a good thing from Jesus that can confront that and do the right thing, overcome it. Because Jesus faced that and more. Oh, blessed, blessed Jesus. Blessed Jesus faced everything I'm talking about. And so you look down, you pray. That's what Paul did. You struggle. That's what he was doing. He was going about it the right way. He just hadn't found the treasure yet. He's struggling, struggling. What's the answer? This is driving me crazy. And then God says, here's the treasure. It's real simple. It's not appealing to the world, but it's my grace is sufficient for thee. And then he goes on to say, now I take pleasure in these sorts of things. You're like, are you crazy? He's like, no, I'm not crazy. I, I wear these jewels of my Savior. And I like the way they look in time of crisis. And actually, the rest of the churches do too. Because he could have become an old grumpy man and justified it. 
You know, we could create the story. After all I do, after all the miles that I travel, and these schmucks come along, don't know a tenth of what I know, and you listen to them? I mean, he knows how to rebuke as well when it's by the Spirit of God in the Corinthian epistles. We could get into that. I have other examples that make the same case, but I'm going to get to the third section. As God allows, we'll get through this third section. Here's the third principle. Number one, recognize there's no good thing in you. Number two, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian church, then you have an entirely new source of solutions. It's called every good thing that God has given you in His Word. So number three, face the pressures of the problem and participate with others to solve it according to the principles of God's perfect precepts. In other words, acknowledge every good thing that is in you. This is exactly what happens in Paul's letter to Philemon. We're going to read through this letter. It's only 25 verses, and we will not be making long remarks about every verse. But what you are going to discover very clearly is the following. Someone is going to have to find every good thing that is in Philemon. By which I mean, as you will see, when this letter is read by Philemon, in the way in which it's put together, and in the context in which it was likely written, then either Philemon is going to experience it as an incredible amount of pressure working on him to find good things within him to respond as a Christian to this pressure as opposed to falling apart, or he's going to experience this as a lovely sense of Paul's confidence in him because Paul has already found these character traits in Philemon. But one way or the other, someone is going to have to find every good thing in Philemon for this letter to be read and processed well. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's either Paul has already found it and everything he says to Philemon in this letter is all about, I know who you are, Philemon. I know you can count, I can count on you. Here's everything I'm saying to you. And I already know you'll do all of this. Or it is a letter written to Philemon wherein Paul is aware this is a crisis that is only going to get solved if we activate some Christianity here. And I'm going to write this in such a way so that it exerts pressure on Philemon to dig deep and find the good things that are necessary. Somebody is going to have to find the good things or this is going to blow up. I want to read you a statement from the Lutheran commentator R.H. Lenski about Paul's tact that gets to what I was essentially saying. Lenski says, Paul shows perfect tact in this letter. He calls out all that is noble in Philemon. Allow me to add myself parenthetically, or all that should be noble in Philemon. But back to Lenski, he calls out all that is noble in Philemon. He touches all the motives that will induce Philemon to receive Onesimus back in a Christian manner. No excuse is offered for the slaves running away. He ran away as a pagan. Paul returns him as a Christian. 
Philemon lost a heathen slave who had never served his master except in his heathen way. Paul gives him back a Christian slave who comes back to his master of his own accord. Onesimus does, and that's true. Impelled by a Christian conscience, that is Onesimus, impelled by a Christian conscience, to make good his past grave fault and henceforth to serve his master in a truly Christian way. Paul's letter meets the case with such perfection that every line becomes precious to those who desire to emulate the apostle's spirit and the perfect way in which it reaches out toward another's heart. The whole letter is pure gold. No wonder the church placed it into the canon. You know, one of the sub-themes to all of this that I hope you will find particularly beautiful is the fact that Paul himself is displaying the good things of the Christian faith. He's supplying them into this situation. He already has done so, and so much that he has done in helping Epaphras that gets the church going, and Philemon, who we'll see was his convert as well, and then meeting Onesimus, you understand, and bringing the gospel to Onesimus, and then caring about trying to reconcile these men back at that church, and giving them all the wisdom that they need This should not be unappreciated. This is not the reserve of the Pharisee Saul of Tarsus. This is the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ that at a great price and through great labor, Paul digged down and he was one who just didn't read the text, the Old Testament scriptures and whatever God was showing him. He said, these things are profitable to equip a man for every single situation if you will activate them and he did and so this letter is pure gold and why because it's all jesus so here's what we're going to do we're going to work through the 25 verses each verse is going to be attached to a particular type of pressure and then i'm going to expand only very shortly on the type of pressure that this verse speaks to And as I do, you will begin to see and feel the emerging dynamic that was very palpable for Philemon and for Onesimus and even the Christian community in Colossae. And we might even add, though at a distance, for Paul himself, who was the mind under God who initiated this entire process. And no doubt he's in his prison cell in Rome invested in how this all works out this will not take that long and we will conclude with this final effort this is all about a real life display of the third principle which is face the crisis and find the good thing that will meet the need philemon verse one paul a prisoner of jesus christ and timothy our brother On to Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. In this verse, the type of pressure we have can be described as public pressure. When Philemon opens the door and Onesimus and Tychicus is standing there, we might also imagine that Apphia is beside Philemon 
maybe Archippus is over to the side and perhaps the church is assembled. There's an immediate shock when Philemon discovers Onesimus in front of him. He does nothing about the backstory immediately. He just knows, here's a runaway slave that defrauded me. A number of feelings might begin to rise in his heart. Then he's handed this letter while Tychicus is standing there and the rest of the believers are also in the proximity, quite likely. He unrolls the scroll and I will state for your understanding that it isn't until he gets to the 10th verse that he actually brings Onesimus into the conversation. But what he is writing from the first verse, as you will sense, is all about his tact, and it's all about setting up the pressures, or perhaps acknowledging the qualities that are already resident in Philemon. But one way or another, he's setting up the situation that will bring Philemon to the good things that he has to activate right in this crisis moment so everything can go beautifully with Onesimus so that one day this very individual, perhaps who was once a runaway slave, can become the bishop of the port city of Ephesus itself. And the first thing that happens is what we'll call public pressure. Why? Because this letter that is a personal letter to Philemon, I'm saying personal in quotation marks, it's a not so personal, personal letter, and it's that way on purpose. It's addressed to Philemon, but he says, by the way, I am with Timothy. That might not seem that important at this moment, but he's building up what is necessary to bring us to what we need to get to. I won't digress at every point, but this is something like the pressure that is felt when if you've gone to somebody privately and you've discussed with them something that you feel is wrong about their behavior, even in that context, you might mention that someone else has observed this as well. What are you doing? You're bringing what we could call public pressure to help them to find a good thing because if they feel like it's only you, they might blow it off. But if they realize there's a few other people around, then there's going to be more motivation to either manifest what's already in you, because your awareness that others are watching will be palpable at that moment. The Bible tells us in Romans 14, none of us liveth unto himself, no man dies unto himself. I'm saying to you initially, right from the very first verse, Paul is already creating a context in which he's going to send Philemon down to the good thing that Philemon is going to find because he's already of that quality of character or he's going to have to dig down and get it. And he's creating that context by setting his words to Philemon in a public place. So let's get to verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. We might call this partner pressure. He doesn't only start his letter to Philemon. As you will see, this letter at its heart is all about what he wants Philemon personally to do in a relatively personal matter between himself and Onesimus. Do you understand that? But you will notice he doesn't just write to Philemon and that's it. 
He starts off like he does in other epistles that are more public to everyone, says, by the way, Timothy's with me. There's a little bit of pressure. That means Timothy probably knows about this issue. That means Timothy may have even read this letter. So before you blow off this advice, you might want to remember Timothy knows about this issue. And then he also addresses it to Aphia and Archippus. That would be something like if the pastor has something to speak to you about as a member of the church and he comes to your door, he might say, hi, Bob, how are you? Is Carol around? And is Johnny home by any chance? Could we all meet in the kitchen? I want to talk to you about something. And do you recognize with me that in that context, you're either going to find a good thing or the pressures are designed to help you to dig deep and not just ignore what's being said, but your wife is there, your partners are there in the form of your wife, your child, and the entire church. Are you hearing me? He writes this to the entire church. There's a sense in which, there's a tacit sense in which if he addresses it to Aphia, Philemon's wife, and to the church, they have a right to read this letter. Are you listening to me? It's almost intended that you would read this letter. This is before we get to verse 10 and how he wants Philemon to treat Onesimus. And when you get there, you already know this letter is to be read by the rest of the church. Do you not see with me that these are pressures that are on Philemon's life and Paul is very tactfully putting it together, not to shame him, not to manipulate him, but we all need these corporate experiences so that we will do what maybe we aren't that inclined to do without a little help from our friends as it were and we will dig down and find the good thing because otherwise you might just erupt in the flesh but are you really going to do it in front of me maybe you would but will you do it in front of your wife I understand some people would do it in any context but leave they, leave them out of it I'm talking to Christians are you hearing what I'm saying we ha there's reasons for this corporate context and it's useful for all of us. Look at the tact that Paul uses and it's positive ultimately because there is a good thing and sometimes you just need the pressure of a few other people in your presence. Let me tell you something. The people that are closest to us should hold us accountable. And by the way, that includes our spouses. I do believe in divine order in the home. I do believe the Bible teaches that a wife is to submit herself to her husband. But I would state, though I don't do with this verse what some do and basically negate the distinctions in the wife and husband roles as given in Ephesians chapter 5, but the entire section that treats relationships in the home starts with verse 21 and it says submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God and I am stating that in that he writes this letter to Aphia too who is his spouse there's a certain accountability that comes into Philemon's life that will help him to find that good thing and that's the way it should be then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The third verse, I call this placement pressure. Grace to you and peace. Philemon, as this issue reaches your life, Paul is saying, pause for a moment before you respond in the flesh and remember, you're in church. You're in the sphere of grace. 
Show some gratitude and extend the same to others. We haven't gotten to the issue of Onesimus yet, but I'm going to provide some placement pressure. That is to say, I'm going to speak to you and remind you that all of this is happening in a certain setting, in a certain place. And what is that place? It's grace and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you blow up, before you sass, before you argue, you might want to remember, you're in church. You're a Christian. Grace and peace has come to your life. Maybe we should start every conversation among ourselves and meet every crisis with that placement pressure and say, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just doesn't dive, Paul, doesn't dive into Philemon. I'd like you to do this. Would you, would you just forgive Onesimus? Just drop all the charges. He sets this up so as to guide Philemon to go find the good thing. You're in church. There should be lots of good things. You're among Christians. You're in the sphere of grace. Are you kidding me? You can't find a nice response in the sphere of grace? Find it. You're in church. Find the right behavior. I don't know how to overcome this temptation of the flesh. You're in church. You're in the presence of God. We sing hymns and psalms. We read the Bible. Preaching takes place. Find it. Find that which you're inconsiderate of, which means you're not thinking about the treasures in Jesus that would help you in this situation. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. I call this prayer pressure. See how Paul is setting this up? Before he gets to the issue in the crisis, he's saying, I'm praying for you. I'm invested in you, Philemon. Such that when he gets to verse 10, and the following context in Onesimus, here's the issue. In the background, Onesimus can be, I mean, Philemon can be thinking that Paul would be wondering, Philemon, I'm praying for you and I'm wondering, how are my prayers working in your life? And particularly as it relates to these set of requests for Onesimus, I'm praying for you. Are you going to drop the ball? Are you going to respond in the flesh? Are you going to disappoint me in every way such that the message has to come back to me in Rome while I'm in my prison and in a sense directly from you to say Paul's prayers don't work? Is that what you want to send as a message to me, Philemon, my dear brother? Is that the way you want this to work out? You understand what I'm saying? It's when you start the phone call because it's true and you say, I want you to know, brother, I'm praying for you. I want you to know, sister, I've been really praying about this situation. I was up all night praying for it. Now, can we talk about this? And that should help somebody who might otherwise respond in the flesh. It's not a fleshly tactic. It's part of the communication of faith. It's part of the sharing of our faith. Because my good treasure I bring to the situation is I'm praying for you. As opposed to just picking on you. I'm praying for you. And now I'm coming to you to discuss this issue. And I first talk about grace and peace. I first tell you I'm praying for you. All of these things are designed so you can get to the heart of the issue, which I do tell you is in verse 6, as we've seen, and that is, so you can find something good from Jesus Christ about a crisis I haven't even told you yet. I'm going to get to it in verse 10, but I'm setting this all up, and I'm telling you, don't respond in the flesh, don't quit on me, don't bail, don't shrug your shoulder, don't run away, don't weep and cry in despair. Weep and cry if you want for good reasons, but don't weep and cry in frustration. How could you ask this? Find a good thing in you for this issue. 
prayer pressure. Verse 5, hearing, akuon, it's a present participle. That means, I'm not saying I have heard. Once upon a time it was said to me, but he's saying, I am hearing of your faith and love. Sorry, I inverted it. I am hearing of thy love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. He hasn't gotten to the issue yet, but he knows where he's going, doesn't he? Because he sent Onesimus back with this letter, and it's all about Onesimus. This letter is to solve the Onesimus problem. The epistle to Philemon is. Amen? And it's written to Philemon himself. And what's happening here is what we can call personal reputation pressure. And reputation as a Christian. And it's something like this. I am hearing that you're a loving and faith-filled saint. That you have love and faith toward Jesus and toward all the saints. It's the sort of thing that happens when somebody, for whatever reasons, has the reputation of kindness, compassion, generosity. But in a particular personal issue, maybe they're not exercising that quality. Or maybe they would be challenged to exercise that quality. They wouldn't be that inclined to. And what Paul is saying is, how's that famous faith and love toward Jesus and all the saints going to look when it comes to Onesimus? How's that famous reputation that you have, Philemon? They come to me and they tell me, Philemon loves Jesus. Philemon loves all the saints. Right? Paul knows where he's going. I hear, Philemon, that you love Jesus. I hear, Philemon, that you love all the saints and you're faithful. So when I get to Onesimus, Philemon, and you remember what we were talking about before we got here, I'm going to be checking on how well that Christian reputation of yours is holding up now. Now, as I said previously, from Paul's perspective, he could be writing of this in an utterly positive, entirely straightforward manner because he has seen the proven character of Philemon. And he's just saying, I know how you're going to be. I still need to give instructions about Onesimus, but I know exactly how you're going to respond. My guess is it's a mixture. He has a fairly good degree of confidence in Philemon, but you never should take anything for granted. So we're getting a little help from the apostle to narrow us down to the treasure chest of Jesus Christ. And he's using the personal Christian reputation pressure, and there's nothing wrong with that. If we had time, I could go through other of Paul's epistles when he would say, you know, you Romans, you guys, your faith is spoken of through all the world. You Corinthians, I speak about you everywhere. You Thessalonians, and he's not joking, but he knows what he's doing. He's saying, you know, I heard about you, sister. You, you, you're a real prayer warrior. And now you're coming to me and telling me about a crisis and a personality challenge that's driving you batty as it relates to somebody in the church. You, I'm making it up, right? You know, we can say, well, okay, well, you, you have a reputation for being a prayer warrior. And, and you live in that. You know what I mean? So go pray. And that's not mean. That is showing you dig deep and find out the treasure of prayer can work here too. Even though you don't want to pray for this, but it'll work here too. And then you'll show more of Jesus. And the fact that he's hearing it, by the way, I want to emphasize, I'm hearing it, still hearing it. The question becomes, after we talk about Onesimus, will I still be hearing it? Or we're going to have to change the story. Once upon a time, 
Philemon loved all the saints until he met Onesimus. Now that's no longer the case. So then verse 6, which we won't spend a lot of time in because we've already talked about it. We'll simply call it the treasure pressure. It's that verse that says that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you or some manuscripts have in us. Either way, the treasure pressure of that verse is like you shouldn't bury your treasure. Go find it and activate it. Don't put your light under a basket. Don't tuck your talent under the pillow. Faith implies community. Like love implies community. How can you have love on an island all by yourself? Hopefully you would say, or the answer would not be, I would have it in the way that I presently have it. I love myself and no one else. You know? But you can't really have love without community. And I'm saying you can't have faith without a community, by which that means it's in your community settings where you put your Bible to work. You find the treasures that enable you to be a Christian in this situation and to do otherwise is to really just leave all this wisdom buried in the Bible. You follow what I'm saying? All this talent tucked under your pillow when you go to bed and you think, I was a good Christian today and I hope to be a good Christian tomorrow. But you're not fixing the things that are festering which could be fixed if you would dig down and acknowledge every good thing that is in you. It's not enough when somebody shows up at your door to say, be warmed and filled. You've got to give them what the Bible teaches you to produce at this moment. Somebody can say, I have works, you have faith. Show me thy faith without works and I'll show you my faith and my Christian belief system. Show me your Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, or show me your statement, your belief statement, whatever it is for the church. You know what I'm saying? I'll show it to you by when Onesimus shows up at my door and I was defrauded by him and we haven't talked for a long time. He's going to meet Jesus. That's who he's going to meet. Not because of who I am, but because of the good things that Christ has produced in me. So I'm going to show you my faith. Verse 7. For we have great joy... And consolation in thy love, because the hearts of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. We will call this past performance pressure. You see, it's similar to reputation pressure. But again, he says, hey, we have great joy in you, and the saints have been often refreshed. You know with me, don't you? He hasn't gotten to the issue with Onesimus yet, right? He's getting to it. And he knows he's getting to it. But presently he's saying, you know, Philemon, you've brought us a lot of joy. You've brought us a lot of consolation. You've refreshed the saints. And there's a healthy dose of directive toward Philemon digging down and finding good things to match this Onesimus crisis such that the issue becomes, will you disappoint us in this matter? Will you ruin your Christian testimony? over the problem with Onesimus. Verse 8, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee, that which is convenient, that's King James, allow me to read the 8th verse in the ESV, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, what's happening here? Precedent, pressure, 
What do I mean? Paul is saying to Philemon, I haven't gotten to the issue that I need to address relative to your life. I'm going to in just a moment, Philemon. But here's the deal, Philemon. I could play a bit of hardball with you. I could command you. I have the authority and the standing to command you. But I'm going to be merciful. I'm setting a precedent of behavior. I'm setting an example. Here's the precedent of how I'm dealing with you. I could command you. I could be rough. I could be strict and just observe the natural order of things. I'm an apostle. You're lower than me. I could command you, but I'm not. I'm going to be merciful. So how are you going to treat Onesimus? Are you going to follow my precedent? And instead of doing what you could do by rights, are you going to choose mercy? Philemon, there's been a precedent set before you. What are you going to do? Let's see. Verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I had rather beseech thee. Then he adds this. You could just say, for love's sake, I'd rather beseech thee. But Paul very tactfully adds, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I call this predicament pressure. The elderly prisoner of Jesus Christ is saying to Philemon, Philemon, I could command you, but I'm going to choose love. Who's choosing love to you, Philemon? An old man in prison that has already spent much of his life serving others. What are you going to do? Is the question looming in the background. What are you going to do, my healthy, younger brother who lives in his own house with a guest room to Onesimus? This old man in prison is going to show love to you. Let me explain my predicament. I bear in my bodies... You know, the marks of the Lord Jesus or something to that effect. Or Corey Ten Boom could say, exhorting to behaviors to someone in the context of a reincarceration, writing a letter to two people that are having a difficulty between them. I daily suffer want of food, want of freedom, and I'm asking you to choose love to your sister. Yes, you American Christian who's in your own home with all the food you can eat. You follow what I mean? It is helping you to go find that good thing that is in you and he is using this predicament pressure. Verse 10 is where we get to digging into the actual issue. See all the way he set up the context? And now he gets to verse 10 and he says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my bonds. Now, if Philemon is reading this letter as he no doubt did originally in real time, one verse at a time, as it were, one line at a time, remember, he doesn't know what's in this letter. I don't think an Onesimus knows what's in the letter. Or even if he does, 
I don't believe Onesimus would have given him the cliff notes on the letter before he unrolled the scroll and read it. You understanding what I'm saying? In other words, up to right now, all that has happened is Philemon opened the door. I like to think with Aphia not too far away, Archippus over to the right, the rest of the church behind him, and in front of him, to his surprise, is Tychicus and Onesimus. And so far, all he has experienced is seeing Onesimus. And getting this letter, maybe he's like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, you know what? Why don't you read this first? And so he takes the scroll, he unrolls it. He's got all this preamble to the verse, to the 10th verse. And then he gets, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. I call this the porfavor pressure in deference to my dear little melody. A little bit of Spanish for you. Por favor means please. I beseech thee. This is a little bit of please pressure. This is Paul saying, Philemon, I'm on my knees. This old apostle who's treating you with love, who's telling you in the sphere, you're in the sphere of grace, who is reminding you that Timothy's watching, who's summoning your wife in the church and your son at some level into this entire picture. Now I'm on my knees with an emotional request for my son Onesimus, your defrauding slave, but my son who I gave birth to in prison. I think Paul is really going to help Philemon find that good thing that is in him to respond to this issue. Verse 11, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. I call this the past is the past pressure. Or you can call it progress pressure. It sounds like this as Philemon's reading this and taking it in and processing it. And once again, may I state, it's possible that Philemon is there because he's a good Christian and he's 100% there. Like Paul himself is obviously there, right? This advice that Paul is writing, he would live himself. It's right there. He wants to be this way. But if Philemon isn't there, then Paul is sharing his faith, right? To help Philemon find the good thing. And so it sounds like this. Philemon, you must let the past offenses go. It's in times past, he says, that he was unprofitable. Let them go and see Onesimus in a new light. In fact, you must see Onesimus, your former slave, as someone who can bring blessing to your life. Somebody you need. Now I have to lean on what I said earlier, though I have taken a bit of time in how I want to express these verses, but I still feel if you go back and listen and absorb and meditate upon the things I'm stating that are in the Bible, it's not my wisdom, it's in your Bible, you will think about, he's actually saying it's somebody you need. He's profitable, he says to me. He says, once upon a time, Onesimus was unprofitable, which is playing off of the meaning of his name, Onesimus' name in the Greek. He's saying, one time he was unprofitable, but now he's profitable to thee and to me. He's profitable to you. I mean, you think about that. Here's Philemon in real time. He's the master. He owns the home. It was Onesimus who was either his slave through unfortunate circumstances or became an indentured servant because he didn't have enough in life to get on with it. 
and then he steals from him or otherwise runs away. Philemon has a home. Philemon leads a church in part and his former slave shows up and part of Paul's polemic to Philemon is now he's profitable for your life. You shouldn't just let the past be past and not look at him as a former slave. Now welcome him in and says, you know what? I really need you in my life. Wow. Verse 12. Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, my own insides, my own being, my own heart. We could call this presentation pressure. Why? Because Onesimus is standing right in front of Philemon as he reads this verse. And maybe Afia is looking over his shoulder. And maybe he's reading it out to the church because after all, the introduction to the letter says to Afia, to Archippus, and to the church that is in thy house. You understand what I'm saying? It sounds like an epistle. And generally, when you get those epistles from the Apostle Paul, you just read them to the church. But Paul knows what he's doing. It's really about a personal issue with Philemon. But as I said, none of us live unto ourselves. None of us die unto ourselves. And the way Paul feels is, hey, we're in this Christian faith together. And Philemon, it's your job to manifest, to communicate, to share the Christian faith with everybody by you responding like Jesus in this situation so everybody can see who Jesus is through your behavior. And so the presentation pressure, and this happens sometimes in real life too, it looks like this, where maybe there's a disagreement in the family, but let's leave it within the church. Maybe there's a disagreement between two members in the assembly and they're not speaking to each other. One of the things that can be done is you bring that member that the other member has a problem with with you to their house. They don't even know you're doing it, but it's part of what is wise for you to do. And you begin to speak to them about reconciling. And then you say, oh, and by the way, Sally's in the car right now. Or by the way, Sally's right here that they, they take in as they open the door. Did you follow what I'm saying? Because Onesimus is standing right in front of Philemon and he says, I'm beseeching you to receive him, which you have to make a decision about what you're going to do when Onesimus is on your door. And Paul is saying the right move is to receive him. If you do otherwise, Paul is effectively saying, you're going to throw a carnal wrench into all my labors of love. I've begun a good work, Philemon. Don't mess it up. Here's my advice. Receive him. And watch what he does beyond this. He starts off, don't reject him, don't close the door, receive him. Just for any sticklers that might be dismissing some of what I'm saying, not here but anywhere in the world, and you're thinking, it's not that likely that he read the letter at the door threshold. First of all, it's not entirely unlikely that he didn't. But secondly, even if he took the letter into his study, even if he tucked it in his, in his uh, tunic and then took it out a day later, the same principles are going to apply. He's going to have to unroll it and still face the reality of Onesimus and all these circumstances in Athia. What's he going to do? Take a letter that was addressed to Athia and never tell his wife about it? Do you hear me? And when he says, oh, by the way, Paul sent a greeting to you in this letter he sent to our home, she's going to say, well, what's in the letter? What's he going to say? Not show it to them? 
And it's also addressed to the church. Now, again, I like to think Philemon has no problem with this. He's like, everybody gather around. Let's read this epistle from Paul to me. And maybe he just started weeping with Christ-like joy and compassion and seeing the beauty, how how the Christian faith can work. And maybe the first thing he did is put that scroll down and washed Onesimus' feet. But if he did, it's because he's finding all those good things that lots of people can't find in these kind of crises. So presentation pressure, you know, it's like, don't mess this up, Philemon. It took a lot of birth pangs to get them here. Now he's at your door. Receive him. Verse 13, whom I would have retained with me in your stead, that he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. I sure hope you can sense how this is going on. We're going to call this parallel pressure. He's basically arguing, Philemon, your situation is not that different at the end of the day from Onesimus. You also have a moral obligation. So pick your task. If you don't want to partner with me in this loving story that I've begun in Onesimus' life, then here's your obligation. You come to Rome and serve me. If you won't forgive Onesimus' debt, then come pay yours. You don't think he's saying that? You don't think that's built in there? If Philemon would tend to go to the flesh, what do you think it sounds like to his heart when he says, I would have kept Onesimus with me, this beautiful brother in the Lord, who's profitable to me and wants to minister, but we both agreed he should go back to you and get things straightened out. I would have kept him with me instead of you. Why say instead of you, Philemon? He's doing it on purpose. He's saying, Philemon, we all have moral obligations. We all have duties. The duty I'm asking you to do right now is receive Onesimus and forgive him and keep this beautiful story going. If you don't want to do that, if you don't want to forgive a debt, then make your way from Colossae, leave your home and come to Rome and pay your debt to me. Verse 14, but without thy mind would I do nothing that thy benefit should not be as if it were of necessity, but willingly. Now, a cynical person reading this text, and there are no shortage of cynical, unbelieving expositors, they would argue that this is disingenuous, that Paul is barely leaving it up to Philemon's own mind. This thing is already so loaded with a set of conscience-driving obligations and potential embarrassments that he only has one choice. But what is happening here is what we'll call proper motive pressure. I don't see cynicism here. I do see wisdom. I do see tact. But would you agree with me that even the best form of love and compassion is also very wise in a very pure, sharp, illuminating way? It isn't sloppy and gooey and nonsensical. So on the one hand, I really think what Paul is doing is basically helping Philemon find the real good thing, which is don't just do what I'm telling you to do, but dig down and attach the right motive with it. Do it from a willing mind. Do it as a function of your own decision, not just, okay, Paul's asked me to do this. Brother Steve has asked me to do this. My wife has asked me to do this. Melody, in your case, mom or Mamie has asked me to do this. Okay, I'll do it. 
No, if you want to learn about Jesus, learn this principle in verse 14. I don't want to do this without your mind and your will involved. I want you to think about what we're talking about here. You need to get this right in your life, not just because the pastor told you to. Go read the Bible. That's what it says about this issue in your life. And do it with the right motive. Then we'll have a really good thing to meet this crisis. Verse 15. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that you should receive him forever. Once again, taking this all in, I think is more than you can digest sitting in your seats. But if we're serving this out and you can come back and taste of it at your own leisure, then you can digest it in further samplings, if you will. But what we have here is, we'll just call it perhaps pressure. This is the sort of thing that depending on how you're dealing with this, where you're going, if you're going down into the treasures of Christ, then you can see positivity in this, the possibilities, the perhapsness. Hey, maybe that's true. You know, it's like Joseph said. There was a perhaps in the events that might sound a little silly to some people. He's like, you know, maybe what happened was God's providential mercy ultimately to save many people from starvation. And so what you meant for evil, God was involved with for good. And maybe we can look at it a little bit that way and let the past be the past, not ignore what actually happened. He didn't say that he never left, but he's kind of putting a positive look on it. Somebody might call it pie in the sky. Others would look at it more prob positively and say, hey, you know what? With Jesus, there can always be a silver lining to every cloud. Why don't we look for it? That's part of how you find a good thing. Look at, like I just stated with Joseph, he found something positive in this. Do you hear what I'm saying? Verse 16, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is beyond the perhaps that looks in the past and says, hey, you know, perhaps there's some deeper divine plan that can emerge out of this. This is the possibility pressure looking into the future. Hey, now you can receive him not as a servant, but above a servant, a dear brother, especially to me and maybe even more to you. It's as if as Philemon is standing at the threshold looking at Onesimus and all this is unrolling. He's hearing Paul say to him, Isn't it wonderful, Philemon? Onesimus, your defrauding slave, could right in this moment be elevated to being your precious brother forever. You could love him even more than I already do. And I'm not making anything up when I frame it that way. That's exactly what he says. He says, how much more unto thee? Verse 17, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Oh, would to God we had all kinds of time. We don't, but I would very much enjoy having a lot of fun with that verse. But we'll just call this the spiritual partner pressure. And there's a lot of preachers that use this in various ways that I'd love to do a little bit of work with, I was going to say toy around with a little bit, but you know, if you count me a partner, then send in your money. I mean, there's partner pressure going on. And this is not that sophomoric, carnal, 
imbecilic sort of version of it. This, though, it really is. I mean, this is all on purpose. I hope you're getting it. This is not just, he's just trying to write a nice letter and these are the things that are coming to mind. No. These are statements that are to narrow Philemon down to find that good thing. If you count me a partner, receive him as though you would receive me. As Philemon is standing in the door, looking at Onesimus, who he hasn't seen in a long time, thinking about how he's going to respond to this, now he's hearing this in his heart and spirit, thanks be to God for Paul. Hey, Philemon, you and I are friends, right? Right, Philemon? We're friends. Is that right? This guy that's writing to you? We're friends. Is that right? Great. Now do unto Onesimus what you would do to me. And I look forward to receiving Onesimus' report on how you're treating him. Verse 18, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put it on my account. I call this pushing it pressure. For some, that's exactly how it's felt. Now you're really pushing it. Now you're asking me to go the second mile. You have asked me to receive Onesimus. You're basically asking me to let the past be the past. Now you're telling me in this sort of next statement, cavalier sort of way, oh, by the way, everything you're doing, do it for free. Oh, as a matter of fact, don't only do it for free. If he owes you anything, don't ask for it back. But of course, Philemon, if you can't really process that and you feel there's too much of a financial hit on you, homeowner to just drop whatever Onesimus owes you, then you know what? I'll finish the verse by saying to you, homeowner with a guest room in Colossae who can't forgive his slave, Onesimus, don't worry about it, Philemon. I, Paul, the prisoner, the prisoner, the old man in the prison, don't worry, I'll pay you back uh, whenever I get my freedom. But all of this is sincere. But it's also, it's also, I think, pretty close to the way I'm describing it. And... Oh, I hope to God you can hear what's happening here. You know, there's a lot of confidence that Paul has, I would say, first in Christ, and then secondly, in the Christian walk, and then thirdly, in Philemon. Because look at what he's doing. Some people would be satisfied with saying, you know what, just receive Onesimus. Onesimus is going to pay you back. And I'm sure Onesimus would. You understand that, don't you? Onesimus would pay him back. No problem. Onesimus might even want to pay him back. But what Paul is saying is, there's something that we can get out of our relationship with Jesus that is way down deep in the treasures of the sea that can come up and emerge and display something beautiful and unheard of and that the human race never sees often enough. And I want to get you to dig down. I want the crisis to force this particular believer to explore the Christian faith and acknowledge that you can do more than just receive him. You can forgive the whole thing. Wow. And if he does, then the entire church sees the communication of faith. He's sharing his faith. He's taking the Bible and he's sharing it out in life. And people are saying, wow, what a wonderful thing Christianity is. Verse 19, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. However, I do not say to thee how you owe me even your own self besides. I call this psyche pressure. 
Because it's something like this. Oh, and by the way, Philemon, how's your conscience doing? As he moves on, he's basically saying in this 19th verse, now let me be clear. I will pay you every last denarii, every last shilling, every last cent that Onesimus owes you. I'm ready with my own hand. But I'm going to have a little bit of psyche pressure. Let me also be clear. You owe me your life. And if you don't forgive him, we're going to find out how much you think your life is worth. Verse 20. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. We'll call this provision pressure. He's basically saying, Philemon, my joy is dependent on your actions. If you expand it a little bit, that language, Philemon, as he's advising all of this, and when he adds, let me have joy in thee, he's saying, you know, it's kind of tough being a prisoner of Jesus over here in Rome, but I'm counting on you to bring me some joy, to bring an emotional boost into this old apostle's heart while he's behind bars. Will you do that for me, Philemon? And you can do it by receiving Onesimus and forgiving all of his debts. Yeah. I call it provision pressure. It means, you know, dear wife, you're the source of my joy. Can we work this out? Dear husband, you're the one I spend the rest of my life with. You're the one I cook for and, and wash your laundry. Or, or dear daughter, you're the one I gave birth to. Or dear mom, you're my only mom. If I don't get joy from you, who's going to give it to me? Will anybody dig down and bring forth that which is of Christ to make the preacher happy, to make your brothers and sisters in Christ happy, you're the provider of their joy. Let that be a little bit of an incentive to find the good thing for this situation, not the bad thing, that's easy to find. Find the good thing and bring it out. 21, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. Bear in mind that many people are reading this epistle also. You want me to prove that? We are. We're reading it. And millions and millions of people have read it. And it started in his own day or we wouldn't have this letter. He might have gotten the letter in his study, read it and said, I'm not doing this, but I don't want anybody to know I'm not. So we'll play a little Jehoiakim and cut it up and throw it in the fire. No, the proof that we have this letter is additional proof that not only did Onesimus benefit from this process and became a bishop, quite likely, but Philemon clearly overcame because he gave this letter to the churches so we could become a part of the canon of Scripture because he agreed with it and he lived it out. And when I say, remember that lots of people are reading this, and what are they reading? They're reading... This positive pressure that Paul had confidence in him. He says, I'm counting on you, Philemon. But that's not all he said. He said, in fact, I'm telling everyone that you will do more than I ask. Everybody who reads this is reading about Paul's positive pressure, meaning he's positive about this individual. That's okay. We can do that sometimes. We can say, you know what, brother or sister? I know you will overcome in this. I know you will. And I'm even telling other people, you're a good person in Jesus. I know you will bring this to the Lord and you will overcome. There's nothing wrong with that. 
You say that's manipulation. No, it isn't. You're helping people to navigate through the obstacles that Satan would put in our past and get them down to the portal that leads to the treasures of Jesus Christ. You follow what I'm saying? Help people to realize you can find something from Jesus that is beautiful for this situation. A hundred percent. And he says you'll do more. I mean, I hope to God you're hearing what I'm saying. In other words, it's something like this. If all through this process, Philemon's been digging down into the treasure chest. He didn't just go on the surface. He went down, he found some rare gems that few ever pull up. And he's getting down there pretty deep. And Paul says, receive Onesimus, just receive him. And he found a gem. And then Paul said, and for that, he found a gem for that, digging down to a certain depth. Then Paul says, now drop everything. Meaning, don't just receive him, but drop all the debts. He goes, whoo, all right. He has to dig deeper. He finds a gem for that. And then he says, now receive him as your brother. He goes down a little bit deeper for that. And then he says, and do even more than I'm asking you. You follow what I'm saying? The gem he just had, he's got to kind of leave that and dig down a little bit deeper and say, okay, now I'm going to find a gem in Christ that enables me to go the second mile. I already feel like I've gone the second mile. Go the second, the third, the fourth. Is there a gem for the fifth mile? Believe it or not, there is. And he's going down. Now here we get to it. As I said, we're getting close. The 22nd verse, if you thought... He dug as deep as he needed to, and he can finally just take a breath and pull out that gem and go on his way. He's not quite done yet. He says, but with everything else, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. How in the world do you even frame this piece? I'll call it personal presence pressure. But the way it works is, Paul says, by the way, after all of this, he says, by the way, I'm going to need a place to stay if I ever get out of prison. And guess who I'm planning to come visit? The one who wrote you this letter. I'm going to come to your house and I want to live right in your home so that I can personally witness how you responded to everything that I'm asked, that I've asked you to do. I want to come to your house, live in your house, and observe for myself how you responded to Onesimus. How's that, Philemon? And he doesn't leave it there. He says, and by the way, Philemon, I want you to pray for that to happen. Prepare a lodging for this one who is telling you from Rome, you receive your defrauding slave, forgive everything, I'll pay you back. But of course, that's a prospect. You've got to really make the old apostle pay you back. So he's the one writing all of this. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the flesh, Philemon could be feeling a bit put off by Paul, is what I'm saying. But then he adds, and by the way, prepare the guest room for me. Will you do that for me, Philemon? Now, as I've said throughout this, it may well be the case that from Paul's side, this has very little to do with considering a personality in Philemon that's going to need a lot of help to put the old man to death and to find the treasures of the new man. It could just be he knows who Philemon is and this is what Christians do for each other. But either way, it's working because good things, I mean, good things can include the one who is correcting you and admonishing you and setting your life straight is the one that you need to lend your car to next week. 
and you don't look at them or say deep in your heart, yeah, you correct me, but without me, what would you do? Oh, pastor, you correct me, but if I didn't put that money in the love offering box, where would you be? So let's, like, let's get this straight here, you know? That's, that's flesh, brothers and sisters. And he says, by the way, I, I'm believing you're going to be praying for this. Then, verse 23, there salutes you from Rome, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. I call that pal, pressure, friends, you know? In other words, as he ends this letter, he's just about done, and so am I. He very tactfully reminds Philemon, by the way, one of your friends is with me. He salutes you, which implies he's probably read the letter. I'm not necessarily going to tell you he read it, but it's lingering there. And he's basically saying, you know, Philemon, you and I share some friends, which on a normal day is just information, great information. Philemon would be the first one to say, yeah, Paul, we share lots of friends like Epaphras, this wonderful man who's presently a fellow prisoner. But in this case, he's reminding him, you remember your friend Epaphras? He's my friend too. And very likely he knows everything that I'm asking you to do. Bear that in mind before you decide what you're going to do with Onesimus. And in verse 24, let's have a multiple pal pressure. Also Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. Just another set of names to remind Philemon, we're all in this faith together. But don't forget, there's lots of men out there, Philemon, and some of them are in prison. Some of them are fellow laborers. Some of them are missionary fields. And on and on, you're following what I'm saying? And what you're being asked to do is not some extraordinary thing, given the sufferings that are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I mean, honestly, brothers and sisters, would to God, this particular point had more power in it in some Christian lives. Would to God that in your own personal life, in your own awareness, but also it should be the case that the pastor can raise those sorts of observations or brothers exhorting brothers and sisters exhorting sisters. We should be able to raise perhaps acquaintances we have or as you did brother today, raise the awareness of what about Sister Corey Tenboom? I know she's passed, but you can remind us all about Corey Tenboom as we're being encouraged to take some particular action of self-sacrifice. Amen. Well, that's true. And then it ends with verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I take this as being a very calm conclusion to Paul's letter. But this calmness is like the calmness of a beautiful summer night with a beautiful sunset in which the air is still but everything is awesome. And I call this parting perfect pressure. Why? Because in verses 23 and 24, the example of mere humans was brought before Philemon to add that friend acquaintance pressure. Good men like Epaphras and Aristarchus and Luke and so on. But there's one last thing that Paul adds to this personal but not so personal letter to Philemon. And he basically says, Philemon, I trust you are benefiting from the unmerited favor of God. You know this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I trust you're benefiting from God's grace wherein he 
freely forgives all your debts, charging them to Jesus' account. And as the sun continues to set in all of its beautiful colors, certainly Philemon can reflect on the parable of Matthew 18. Are you really going to grab the neck of Onesimus even a little bit, to squeeze out a little bit of what should be yours? Or are you going to flow with the spirit that is in this letter through the Apostle Paul, who's signing off reminding you of the perfect person, Jesus, who forgave all of us runaway slaves a hundred percent. It's unimaginable. As this beautiful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ sets the backdrop for the end of this letter, it's just unimaginable that Philemon would not find something as beautiful as God's sunsets in Jesus Christ to raise to this crisis occasion and present to Onesimus the self-same grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was a good thing for this situation. I forgive you, Onesimus. We drop the debts. I'm looking forward to Paul coming here and being among us, and let's be the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you.